You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. People once believed that when someone dies, a crow carries their soul to the land of the dead. But sometimes, just sometimes, the crow could bring that soul back to put the wrong things right. Gasoline, I smell. <laughs> Victims, aren't we all? Hello again. This is Annie Rose Malamet of Girls, Guts, and Giallo. I'm back. It's been a while. And I'm here with a guest, of course. And today, Shelley Romero and I are talking about the infamous film, The Crow. Hi, Shelley. Hi, Annie. I'm so excited to be here. Yay. So excited to have you. This was Shelly's suggestion. Uh, this is always a movie I've had on my list of movies I was going to do. So I'm excited. And Shelly has like this really epic Halloween background display. Obviously, you guys <laughs> can't see it, but it's pretty perfect for this film. It just a few announcements before we actually start talking about the movie. If you miss me, if you want more of me, you should sign up for our Patreon. Shelly is a patron. That's how we met. There's some really amazing, smart people on there. Uh, people I would consider my peers and colleagues, and I'm really honored that they support me. It's patreon.com slash giallo. We have a Discord. We have a book club. There's bonus episodes and film screenings. And next month for our book club, we are reading two novellas by the author Georges Bataille. We're reading Story of the Eye and Ma Mère. And we're also going to watch the film adaptations of those novellas. And our theme for the month for our regular screenings is Satanic Sex Cults, which I feel like plays really well into the movie that we're talking about today. <laughs> uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that the last episode I released, the last main episode I released, Videodrome, uh, 
Um, I lied about not talking about the production of films anymore. Uh, I should never, ever make sweeping statements like that about the show because I'm always going to change my mind. Because with that film, I didn't really care so much. But with this film, the production history is a huge part of it. So we're obviously going to talk about that. So before we get into the nitty gritty of The Crow, and I feel like this is going to be a really long episode because I have a ton of notes. Shelly, would you introduce yourself to the listeners, who you are, what you're about, what do you do? Of course. So hi, everyone. I'm Shelly Romero. I am a book editor. I actually started my career in children's books, but Actually, I'm now working on children's and adult, which is going to be a lot of fun because I'm concepting a lot of horror. Um, And as Annie mentioned, my whole background is horror. I've been a horror fan since I was a little girl. My mother, a Honduran immigrant to the States, absolutely did not care for the MPAA. (laughs) She was like, fuck it, you're going to watch whatever we like. Um, So she's actually, I think, one of the ones who introduced me to a lot of really great movies. But um, yeah, I'm an editor. I occasionally dabble in writing. I write Ghoul Gal on Substack. uh, So if you'd like, I have not updated it in a while, but I do write about there and I have referenced the podcast in my newsletter. So that's like it in a nutshell. And unfortunately, I'm not related to George Romero, the director. But I always like that would be I'm always like it's Romero like the director but no I'm not related unfortunately (laughs) and Shelly what how as a patron can you plug me like do you enjoy being on the Patreon? absolutely oh my oh my listen I think I listen I slid into Annie's DMs to talk about like be like I love your podcast and I think that this podcast truly has like allowed me to like discover and basically like look more into myself and I think the Patreon members are such a hoot they're so sweet I love them depravity just also ensues in there and I love it so much (laughs) yes the nicest perverts ever so I think if you've been on the fence like I finally took like you know the leap of faith and was like let me go in there and it's been so much fun like there's like pets being shown some tarot talk like I don't I don't know what else to tell you like if you love this podcast like you should just do it (laughs) thank you so much for plugging (laughs) plugging me at my command um (laughs) speaking of amazing patrons a lot of my production notes actually came from uh to actually one of the patrons and their partner and I call my patrons teachers pets because it's just so apt because they do things like this for me um, I have to give a shout out to Girls Got Sinjalo patron and horror fiend Anna Shabold and her partner in crime Andy Warham bona fide aficionado of The Crow they had this book that I do not have called The Crow the Movie and it goes into the production details. And they sat down together and reread this book together and took notes for me. <laughs> and it was just really, I was just really moved by that. I feel like this, I always kind of hesitate to make the, the show too much about me and, you know, what what I'm about. Because I really feel like this is in a lot of ways, a group effort. Like I'm learning from people and um, a lot of 
people who support me, help me out with things like this. I've been really busy. So this was really, really helpful. And I can't emphasize enough just how grateful I am that they did this. Uh, So let's get into it. So first, we're going to just briefly talk about the graphic novel, or I guess I should say the comics. Full disclosure, I'm not a comic person. I don't know a lot about this world. So sometimes I mix up comic and graphic novel, and I'm sure a lot of the purists would not like that. So I apologize in advance. I read it in full as like kind of a like a compendium so it felt like a graphic novel to me (laughs) but i know that they were released as individual comics uh shelly have you read the comics i have the special edition that was published in 2011 which is that's basically one of the texts that i used for this because i i read it and i was like i finally need to buy it um but it came out i think from gallery Galley books, uh, Simon and Schuster. And it has like all these afterwards and intros and like just kind of behind the scenes things. Um, yeah, so it's it really, really amazing. That's the copy I have too. And I've never read this. And this was a really good excuse to finally read it. And it's really beautiful. And I, it is. yeah, like I said, I'm not really a comics person, but when it's like dark and gothic, I'm there. <laughs> uh, and this is like the quintessential gothic comic. So (laughs) (laughs) James O'Barr wrote this in during uh, grief, right? Uh, Yeah. His fiance was killed very suddenly by a drunk driver. So this graphic novel, this comic was uh, inspired by that grief that he was going through Um, yeah heavily right and I don't know how I (laughs) I just you know I have to interrogate everything on this show I don't know how I feel Mm -hmm. about the fact that this man's uh, fiance was killed by a drunk driver and then you know the the kind of story that he creates around it is like this really violent rape Um, yes (laughs) that's it's really it it is really interesting. Like, you know, he says, he says, I think he was like, he says he was a teenager. I actually don't know, like maybe how old he was. Um, and that he basically just hadn't paid his uh, car insurance and asked her to come pick him up. Um, and on her way to the car, she got run over and it was instant, like instantaneous. And so he's always kind of had this like guilt about it. Um, and I think he like, maybe until recently like I feel like him talking about it has still had that guilt and even more because of the movie and what happened um but it is yeah it is interesting that you have this like man who has no other way but to cathartically write about his his the love of his life's like death um but yeah like so violently and gruesome and very rage-filled absolutely (laughs) yes yeah and i always you know am a little wary i mean for all intents and purposes this is like a rape revenge tale and i'm Mm -hmm. always a little wary of uh rape revenge that centers the man who has lost his 
paramour, his female paramour, mm-hmm. to this horrible act. Um, you know, like movies like Straw Dogs, like I'm always a little, you know, cr- more critical of those narratives. Um, it doesn't mean I don't like it. So James O'Barr has said that it the, the crow dramatizes his belief that an absolute pure love does exist and that there are no boundaries between good and evil where love is concerned. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if, I, if I'm on board with that, but that is his kind of ethos yeah. <laughs> behind the comics. Um, I think Shelley and I, as both as I, as goths, uh, probably really both appreciate all of the music references throughout the comics. Um, the yeah. the narrative is really driven by the, these rock music quotes. Yeah, absolutely. I like I I like was looking at this and I can't turn my editor brain off sometimes when I'm like reading and I'm just like, oh my God, what was the legal process for this? Because <laughs> there's full like lyrics. There's like not just like a sentence or two, um, which can be easier, but like there's like like paragraphs sometimes. That's um, such a good point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like completely cold from that culture. Uh, James O'Barr said, I started uh, going out to the clubs in Berlin, seeing bands like Bauhaus, Nick Cave, and German industrial groups. When I finally started drawing The Crow, I was listening to The Cure and Joy Division almost exclusively. And Eric's body movements are inspired by punk icon Iggy Pop. So it's kind of a logical conclusion that they made the character a guitarist in the film to sort of tie that together more. The Crow's makeup, a lot of people think it's a tribute to Kiss or Alice Cooper, but it's actually based on irony from the British theater tradition um, and the three faces of the three faces of drama, which are pain, irony, and despair. And that's actually how some of the sections in the comics are broken up under those titles. So this really cements it into this gothic tradition, which is so inspired by theater and commedia dell'arte. You know, if you look at a lot of 80s goth culture and bands, a lot of them use like the image of the tragedy mask or the Piero. Um, So it's very much in that tradition. The names are pulled from Mary Shelley uh, and Eric from The Phantom of the Opera. And Shelley, I only just realized last, I was like, wait, <laughs> Shelley and Shelley. <laughs> Do you yes. <laughs> like connect with that character at all? She's not really a person. She's n- she's not. And also in the even in the comics, she's she's basically like this, like like motif like she's not really like a full-fledged person like we see a lot more of her in the comics um and see a lot more of their like personality together which was very sweet um but she is kind of like this now like mythical being but i i don't relate to her but i relate to the movie because of my mom naming me after her 
Um, so oh, like you that, actually that, named that's... after Shelly in the movie? Yeah. Oh my yeah. god, your mom so is my so mom cool. Was... <laughs> she is. That's why I like to like joke that I've like been goth since before birth because she was always listening to music. So like I said, she was born and raised in Honduras her whole life and immigrated to the States in 92. And so she would always tell me like, we listened to rock music in Honduras. We just didn't understand what the lyrics were. Right. And she was uh, pregnant by the time the movie came out in May of 1994. And she knew by then that I was going to be a girl. She watched it. And as she tells the story, she ha- they hadn't decided a name. They knew that it- I was going to be a girl and she just loved the way that Eric Draven said Shelly's name. And she would always say like, it's so sweet and soft. And he has so much love for her. And we love the name and your dad agreed. Uh, and so I was born December, 1994. So this movie and I also have like the same birth year. Um, and so that's like why it's always been one of my favorite movies. I've always watched it with her. I tend to watch it once a year. Um, and always like always get emotional like always cry so that's like a little bit of my origin story too <laughs> i love that that's such a sweet connection with your mom in this film yeah <laughs> i also had a mom who let me watch anything so i can really relate to that and i love yeah. that you're named after this uh yeah. <laughs> so there were a lot of changes made to adapt the comic to the film um they really downplay and actually kind of eliminate Eric Draven's drug use. Um, The producer, Jeff Most, said, I just couldn't have Eric running around and shooting morphine into his neck like in the comic. Even for an anti-hero, it was too much. I actually think this is one of the weakest elements of the film because it makes it into kind of like a morality play uh, Mm -hmm. instead of in the comics where it's much more ambiguous and it's uh, you kind of see all the different faces of addiction like uh, Eric is using in a way to cope with the death of his love but then all the other characters are dealing and using and it shows the the banality of evil in regards to how addiction plays out in urban communities. So I actually think something is quite lost um, when they took that out. Uh, But I understand that American audiences would have been like, I don't care about this junkie because people hate Why should we care about him? Right, (laughs) right, exactly. Um, So they also made the crow familiar a real bird, not just a symbol for Eric's consciousness and sanity. Jeff Most said that we wanted the audience to find out Eric's mission at the same time he did, making it a quest for knowledge as well as retribution. They also chose to get rid of the Skull Cowboy, who is a bit of like a guide to Eric um, in the comics. Like he's basically this being who is like Eric, who something has happened to him. Um, And when Eric comes back, he's like, this is the lay of the land. Um, And there's actually like, because of that, there's like a weird bit of like continuity in the movie where you're like, oh, how did that happen? Um, at the like final fight at the at the church because they actually had casted um, for the Skull Cowboy. I think it's Michael Dreryman. Like he's uh, known Michael for like Berryman. the Hills of Eyes. Berryman. 
Yeah. And they actually had him like on set in costume. There's like deleted scenes you can find on YouTube. Um, so I think they lost a bit of that too. But I um, also, as like an editor, understand like, let's not have too much exposition. Let's have the audience figure things out. <laughs> Yeah, and they had fully planned to have Barryman, who's a famous character actor who's been in a bunch of horror movies, like most famously The Hills Have Eyes. Um, they they made this whole amazing animatronic makeup situation for him, and he had fully was supposed to be in the film, but when Brandon Lee tragically passed away, they hadn't shot any scenes with them together, so they needed to sort of take his storyline out. Uh, yeah. Alex McDowell, the production designer, flew to Michigan during the first few weeks of pre-production and was taken on a tour of the city by a man from the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, he felt like he hadn't seen the city represented uh, by the comic. And Alex called James O'Barr and having never met him, arrived at his house and James O'Barr took him around the streets of Detroit and would point to an empty lot and say, this is where the bar The Pit was based on used to be. And at some rubble, this is where I used to live. And it was just amazing that only 10 years later, there was nothing left. So Detroit as a city is also a huge part of this story. I've never been to Detroit, full disclosure. Have you been? No, I haven't. But it definitely is like its own character, which I I like it when movies can make the the city that it's taking place in just feel like this character and this have this like aura. Yeah, and in my understanding, um, Detroit is kind of uniquely economically depressed because of the auto industry that used to be there and the citizens were very exploited by that industry and the city has almost like an, a post-apocalyptic feel to it. That's what I've been told mm-hmm. by people who live there, people who have been there. And you can really get that sense in this film that this is kind of like an abandoned post-apocalyptic city. Yeah. Yeah. The costume designer was Ariane Phillips, and she said that there is a color design to the whole film that I went along with. Um, it's wonderful to work with the director, Alex Proes, uh, Proes, uh, Proyas. <laughs> I don't know how to say his name out loud. Uh He's very specific about what he wants color-wise and about the silhouettes of the characters and the textures. It's like a monochromatic film with a lot of black and gray, and there's also some red, uh, especially with the character of Micah, played by Bai Ling. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's almost like a a bondage piece, Ariane says. It laces up in the back. There's so much bondage imagery in this film. In the yes. Fashion. Uh, the, the fashion is so amazing. <laughs> uh, Micah's like outfits in this movie. I feel like I'm because I was a baby in the mid 90s. Like I'm forever chasing like the high of like trying to find pieces like that and to dress like her. <laughs> oh, my God. Absolutely. She's such a fucking icon. And we're going to talk about her a lot more because <laughs> I'm obsessed. Yes. <laughs> uh and Ariane also said that, you know, Bai Ling has a very strong presence in the film. The live birds um, were actually ravens, not crows. Probably because they look better on camera because they're bigger. Um, yeah. 
Larry Madrid was the animal trainer and he basically said that the the birds were like almost drawn to Brandon Lee. Um, like they he he commanded them very quickly and it was very easy to work with him. Mm-hmm. The soundtrack of The Crow, we have to talk about the soundtrack. We have to. <laughs> it's central. Um James O'Barr said at one point, I was asked who I'd like to see on the soundtrack. I sent producer Jeff Most a short list of my favorite artists and didn't think anything would come of it. Amazingly, they were able to get 75% of them. Uh, In the book, it says the music is the fitting accompaniment to the dark world of love and revenge depicted in the comic and brought to the screen. (laughs) The bands contributing are The Cure, Machines of Loving Grace, Stone Temple Pilots, Nine Inch Nails, Rage Against the Machine, Violet Femmes, uh, The Rollins Band, Pantera, For Love Not Lisa, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult, which is one of my favorite bands, The Jesus and Mary Chain, Medicine, and Jane Seabury. Um, these are it's just like an incredible powerhouse 90s goth soundtrack yeah uh and go ahead i think it's so yeah i think it's so fascinating like my edition of the uh comics like the special edition doesn't have like that one full page where it's just the hanging garden lyrics it actually i think is replaced by joy division lyrics um in 2011, which is interesting. I wonder what happened there behind the scenes. Um, but I mean, like the cure, I think was originally going to, they wanted the hanging garden on the soundtrack because it's so, it was so instrumental to, to Obar and like him writing it. But then they're like, actually we're going to write a song for this. We have, we have something. And they wrote burn which i think is to me this is my favorite and it's the standout like song and it has like it's set up against in the movie like the most beautiful scene when he's getting ready and he's getting oh, so and then in the look Chill. he has this whole montage i love it yeah <laughs> yeah every night i burn yeah it's so yes. good and uh you said here that they haven't played it live until 2013 they yeah, they hadn't. And I like I wonder why. And I wonder maybe it's because like the crow and, and Brandon Lee's death. Um, but they finally like I like in 2013 started playing it live, um, which I'm like, if I ever got to see that song live, I could die happy. <laughs> if I got to see The Cure live, I could die happy. I've missed them a couple of times, but yeah. <sighs> I was finally able to see Bauhaus for the first time this year because they're yeah. boring. Yeah. Did you saw them too, right? No, I haven't. I oh, think they I were coming they were. to I think they are coming to Brooklyn this year, but I think like the timing that might not work out. Ugh, if you can so. go, it was one of the most amazing concert experiences of my life. When Peter Murphy came on stage, I started sobbing. I never understood <laughs> like those fan moments where people's idol comes out and they just like burst into tears and it's completely involuntary. Um and my girlfriend was really sweet about it. Uh, she is, I kind of introduced her to this band. Um, she really had not listened to them, and uh, she was really supportive. Uh, so I would absolutely die to see The Cure live. Um, yeah. Why people think this film is cursed. This film is uh, showcased in the Shudder 
cursed films series, which I think is like pretty controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of stuff went wrong on the production for this film, um, even before Brandon Lee was shot. Like there was an electrician who was working mm-hmm. on the power grids who got really severely burned and actually lost his ears in the accident. Um, the production got a voicemail before the production even started uh, by an anonymous group telling them not to make the film. Um, and then, of course, uh, the final shooting in Eric and Shelley's apartment, which had been saved for the last week, allowing Brandon to work without makeup. And on the night of March 31st, he was injured while filming on the loft set at Carol uh, Co. Studios. Uh, a tip from a dummy round, which is a prop bullet that has no gunpowder, had lodged in a gun and was subsequently ejected from the barrel like a piece of shrapnel. Uh, when a blank cartridge was fired, Brandon died hours later at Wilmington Hospital. It was extremely tragic and it, very traumatic for everyone who was working on the film. Yeah. And there were a lot of really, there were a ton of conspiracy theories at the time, which felt incredibly disrespectful to the people that were working on the film. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is quite eerie, the parallels. And, you know, I think kind of begs to be noticed almost. Yeah. Brandon Lee's father, Bruce Lee, also died while shooting a film. He didn't die on set, but he died in the process of shooting the film. I believe it's called The Death Game. And in the in the film itself, and the, the film is about filmmaking, and there's a scene where he's shot with what's supposed to be a prop gun, and he gets actually shot. So that's also very eerie. So there were all of these conspiracies at the time that uh, Bruce Lee's family line was cursed or that the Chinese mafia had put a hit out on him for exposing all of these martial arts secrets to the mainstream. Obviously, like none of that is true, but it, it really the like I said, the parallels are quite eerie and this was such a a tragedy that I think people just needed to find some meaning in it. And I also think people are just, you know, people theorize so much about why people are attracted to death or true crime or things like this. And I think a lot of the time the simple answer is just people are morbid as fuck. Like, I don't, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if there is like a deeper meaning a lot of the time, except that death is part of human life and it's unknowable and untouchable unless you cross over to the other side. And that just fascinates us as people mm-hmm. and the way that it can all be taken from you in an instant. And especially on this film, this is about like a living dead man and yeah the the man playing that anti-hero died while filming it you know it's very compelling um and tragic 
And uh, the story itself is steeped in tragedy. So I kind of see why people's people went there to, uh, you know, of this being a cursed film. Okay, so the production shut down immediately while the filmmakers came to grips with the tragedy and tried to figure out what to do next. But except for some flashback sequences, the entire story of The Crow had been filmed by the time of the accident. So they decided to push forward and they felt compelled to finish because to preserve Brandon's legacy and the incredible performance that he'd given and James O'Barr, poor guy, um, felt so much guilt yeah. and self-hatred uh, that he felt over his fiance's death as well. And Eliza Hutton, who was Brandon Lee's fiance at the time, you know, really pulled him out of the darkness and, you know, telling him that it wasn't his fault. Yeah. I think it's just so like it's so sad to think about like that he also blamed himself and i mean like you know he i could imagine like he's writing this comics to try to get rid of this guilt and this anger and then all of a sudden like we mentioned earlier like he this happens again like someone dies and he he literally wrote um in the intro to the special edition like if i had never written this fucking thing it, saying like Brandon could still be here, um, which is a lot. Which is which is a lot. Like, wow. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, to have this amazing piece of art that you've created out of grief bring even more grief. I just can't even really imagine that or conceptualize that. Um, you did. Did you have the note here about the fatal shooting during the production of Rust? Yeah, yeah, which I thought was interesting because I think immediately once people got news that it was a fatal shooting, um, that immediately the crow got back brought into the conversation. Like, I think, you know, unless you're tweeting to the, you know, the niche groups on, and, and they're like, yes, I love the crow and they talk to you, like, it, it doesn't really get brought back into mainstream or whatnot. Um, but with this shooting, like, I saw it, like, pop up a lot more on my timeline like Brandon Lee died just like this like 28 years ago and this happens again like why hasn't Hollywood solved this but I think it was even more that like this was the first time Eliza Hutton made a statement in those 28 years um you know she told she told People Magazine that she you know her heart ached for um Halnia Hutchinson's um, husband and son um, and then she also had posted like a photo on her Instagram it was so it's like such a sweet photo. And he's like taking a selfie with a camera with her, um, holding her after they just got engaged. And the caption was just like, there's no such thing as a prop gun. And I'm just like, <sighs> like she only made those two very brief statements when the news first broke. But it was like, She's absolutely right. And I think Shannon Lee also made a statement. Um, and it, it, it was just like, why does this keep happening? I believe if I might be mistaken, like when Brandon Lee was shot originally, that also changed in Hollywood how gun shooting scenes are changed. And it's actually very interesting that 
the stamp man who stepped in to be the body double to film those remaining scenes also is the director of those gung fu movies the john wick movies um so it's even interesting that there's like all these little connections and things like that yeah that is really interesting i mean i i don't know specifically what changed after brandon lee uh died uh but she's absolutely right there is no such thing as a prop gun because mm-hmm. you know as i was watching the cursed films episode about this last night i was like if these if any of these can kill someone these are not props like no you know anything coming out of a gun at that speed is going to kill someone you know even these dummy bullets so and uh, Michael Berryman, or no, John Berryman, excuse me, um, the actor who was meant to play the Skull Cowboy, uh, talked in that episode about how they used prop men that were out of union and they were overworked and tired and they made a mistake because they weren't being treated properly. Um, in their working conditions. And I feel like that's a huge problem now too. And this is why unions are so important because mm-hmm. you we are not um, superheroes. Like people get tired and confused when they're overworked and they make mistakes that kill people and it's completely avoidable. So Absolutely. yeah. So yeah, I was thinking about that too. Um, and how is this still happening? And I'm sure there's so many other things that are happening that we don't hear about. Oh, yeah. So, Shelly, you also brought up the remake, which I wanted to talk about before yes. we get into the plot. I ooh, I feel like there's been so many like announcements of like we're gonna do a remake and i think at one point like jason momoa was attached and had done like some uh like some screen tests um that popped up on the internet um but then that never happened like this movie also is like one of those movies that keeps people keep trying to remake and then just ends up in like developmental hell and then never comes to fruition so the latest news, I was like, okay, here we go again. Um, but the latest news made me even more wary for a variety of reasons. One of those being that it's being directed by Rupert Sanders, who did Snow White and the Huntsman. Like, this man has had just, like, all misses, no hits for me. I'm just like, I don't trust this man to have the depth to, to like, remake The Crow. Either pulling from the comic itself or just pulling from the original itself. Bill Skarsgård has been announced as having cast as Eric Draven, which is also interesting that, you know, Brandon Lee was half Chinese and it was really interesting to have a leading man who's half Chinese um, in the mainstream. Um, But then FKA Twigs was announced as Shelley Webster. Um, And that to me gets a little bit into... Uh, colorblind casting Um, and how in some situations it could be good because it is used for um, adding more BIPOC diversity onto, you know, 
different types of media. But at the same time, when you have colorblind casting, you have to think about the implications of what it means for those characters being casted now by actors who are BIPOC, who are stepping into a role that maybe was originally white and how, what happens to those characters and then um, in that media can have a lot of like layered things to it, a lot of nuanced things to it. So the first thing I was like, wow, this movie is very, you know, like the the scene in the in the comics is, I think, like a, is a lot too. And so is it in the in the movie when you have Eric walking into Shelly being assaulted and being beaten. Um, and now I'm thinking like of seeing like this young biracial woman also in that it adds these layers to it. Um, so all all in all, yeah, I think, I don't know if this movie's ever going to get made because of like the past ones, but the fact that they have been announcing it kind of symbols to me that they're, we're going to get something at least, like there's going to be something filmed. And I will watch, but... <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it also, yeah, I think this brings up some really interesting questions about race in this story. Um, You know, I really Mm -hmm. loved the comics, but I have to be honest that while I was reading it, I was like, some of this just feels racist. Like, oh, absolutely. Right. Like, some of the way that the. There's like a hard ER N word said by characters. And I'm like, this is James Obar, who is a white man writing these characters who are black um and while they're gang members like i'm like oh this yeah it this feels, feels like you are making right caricatures if yes exactly i was just gonna say it feels like parody um and like how white people imagine urban black mm-hmm. people to talk uh and you know, some of it is like quite cringy. Uh, some of the dialogue mm. and some of the way that the black characters are illustrated. And it seems to me in the movie that they were aware of that. So they yeah. they sort of tried to temper it a bit by uh, casting, you know, doing kind of colorblind casting, like you said. Um, yeah. But even still, the character of Tintin says a lot of things about raping a white woman that seem pulled from the imagination of white people uh, and their fears about black men raping white women. Um, And yeah, I mean, we can love this and still be very critical of it. And I think, yeah. And I think that, you know, there's some things that really gets it right. Uh, you know, like you said, Brandon Lee being this half Chinese uh, hero of the story. And I don't I don't think that, you know, everything needs to be positive representation. I'm not one of those people, obviously. So that's not even what yeah. I'm getting at. It's more so the way that they move through the story betrays some kind of deep-seated stereotypes uh and Mm -hmm. you know brandon lee is almost allowed to occupy like a different space because of his adjacency (laughs) it's not even a word because he is adjacent to whiteness yeah yeah 
And yeah, I don't know how I feel about FKA Twigs. I don't really know if I need to watch a black woman get gang raped. Um, okay. And, you know, it, it brings up a lot of questions. Like, I'm not going to completely write it off, obviously. Like, I never do. I always have to see something before I decide how I feel about yeah. it. Um, but yeah, Bill Skarsgård as Eric Draven. I don't love that decision. Um, I think this is this role belongs to Brandon Lee, and I think in keeping yeah. with that legacy, the actor should also be Asian. That's my opinion. Um, yeah, I I felt that same way because then it's interesting. You know, there's um one of my oh, there's an author. Um, who I think on Twitter, she said, um, she's a YA author, Farida. Um, she said that the reason why BIPOC are able to write characters, right, of um, who are white, who are um, not from their same race is because BIPOC have to navigate this world. And I think she specifically said, uh, you know, we have PhDs in, in whiteness because we have to navigate the world. We have to understand it. Um, and so it's interesting because in the movie, yeah, and it doesn't really, um, his identity, his like, you know, cultural and racial identity doesn't really inf- inform Eric Draven as a character, but it's still like, he's there. Like, you, you know, you know, it's Brandon Lee, um, you know, his in background so it's interesting that they're like we went with bill skarsgård and i love bill skarsgård like i think he's a really interesting actor he's done like a lot of really interesting roles but again like it it, like you said it belongs to brandon that's how i feel too and back to rupert sanders and whoever's going to write this like i don't know if they're gonna have the capacity to do this right and even while him being of Chinese descent is not foundational to the film in a way it kind of is because of the martial arts imagery and how important that was to Brandon Lee and Bruce Lee's legacy so absolutely it it, it takes something away to me Um, Mm -hmm. okay so I want to set up a little bit of like the textual analysis that I'm using here when we talk about the plot of The Crow. And the main text that I'm using to analyze this film is from a book called Goth, Undead Subculture, which was published in 2007. And I'm specifically using the essay, Men in Black, Androgyny and Ethics in The Crow and Fight Club by Lauren M.E. Goodlad. So... This is, I really enjoy this book um, and so glad that it exists. And uh, I was lucky enough to get a PDF copy of it. Goodlad argues in this essay that gothic narratives obsessively rehearse a male desire for completion, dramatized by a male experience of pain. She argues that such narratives, while typically seen as kind of exploding gender roles, um, have been germinating ever since the culture of the Enlightenment began to impose new and deeply gendered understandings of heterosexual coupling, reproductive difference, and ethical dividedness 
onto our experiences of modernity. Uh, so she basically says that at kind of like at first glance, they seem to be the, very subversive in regards to gender, but that they reinforce this idea of men using women as part of their pain cycle to come to a place of enlightenment. Uh, she says in the 19th century, Gothic, Romantic, and aesthetic discourses reclaimed aspects of the feminine as a foundation for male alternatives. Uh, writers like Baudelaire and Nietzsche utilized feminizing language. For example, Nietzsche spoke of his pregnant wisdom, yet women themselves are subjugated in the text. Uh, and Shelley you noted here about Baudelaire in the comics. Um, yeah. He appears all throughout it. There's like a couple writers and poets that Obar pulls from, like Arthur Rimbaud and Rose Feilman. Uh, but Baudelaire, I didn't do like a tally, but he's the one who appears the most. And he has like paragraphs just like on the corner of the pages. Yeah, Baudelaire is just Yeah, Baudelaire is very apt for this story. Um, I mean, he wrote his famous poetry collection, Flowers of Evil, um, which is I believe I I I please gothic scholars don't pillory me, but I believe that this man was on opium uh while he was writing these. I think that's part of part of the history of it. Um and he it's this very like angsty feminine yet very masculine kind of existential piece um Good Lad has this great quote that I just wanted to read in full. In the 1970s and 1980s, goth subculture emerged as a bricolage of the hyper-romantic. Goth youth culture culls freely from subcultural antecedents such as glam and punk, from the works of gothic literati such as Anne Radcliffe, Baudelaire, Algernon Charles Swinburne, and Bram Stoker, and from taboo sexual cultures including queer, porn, BDS, SM, drag, and blood sports. Okay, love that. <laughs> Although youth of both sexes are drawn to the subculture, goth's most arresting stylistic signature is arguably the conspicuous display of androgynous masculinity. Male goth's appropriation of various feminine signs, for example, long or teased hair, makeup, flowing skirts, bridal costumes, jewelry, aims to enunciate a correspondingly feminized, which is to say gothicized, interior, a realm of forbidden depth, anti-rationality, and sensitivity stolen from the feminine. Goth-influenced narratives in fiction, pop music, film, and graphic novels thus cultivate a feeling, crying man, a postmodern evocation of aesthete, dandy, and tragedian. Woo! <laughs> what Bitch, <a> <laughs> you better fucking write this book. I, I love this. <laughs> I don't fully agree with everything she says but god fucking damn it she sells it to me 
Um, she then goes on to say, yeah. for all of these reasons, goth masculinity is in many respects an ideal subject for a postmodern theory of gender performativity. Um, she argues that these narratives include the the specter of women, but are about the male character's transformation through pain, something a female partner can never truly complete in the romantic cycle proposed by the narrative. Uh, pain has become the credential of his artistic parthenogenesis, his subject constituting androgyny, and therefore of his masculine self-determination. Uh, so deceptively using femininity to reinforce masculine self-determination. Um, the narrative spectacularizes male pain and in doing so articulates a desire for androgyny that is never fulfilled. Now, I find her analysis, despite picking apart heteronormativity, to be quite heteronormative itself, um, mm -hmm. not leaving a lot of room for gender fluidity. Um, regardless, it is a very interesting piece, and I think there is something to it. Uh, what else does she Yeah, say? I agree. Yeah, like – I mean, I think nothing is ever either or, right? Like, there's a lot of things going on. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah, and I think that there's a lot of queer and transgender expression in quote-unquote male goth aesthetic. And I also think that uh, male and men in goth are notorious misogynists who think that they're not misogynists because they dress androgynous. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I was going to say, like, even that, like – I think a lot of the times because it's like these outsider com like groups, I don't want to say community because not a lot of the time are they communities because that would mean it'd be welcoming and safe. But a lot of the times uh, when like people are, are growing up or like coming into themselves, they use certain things like they, they start realizing things about themselves if they're doing it. So who's to say that, you know, someone who, was you know presenting as male and is like go dressing goth but is now pulling these feminine things out or quote unquote is realizing okay no maybe i'm i'm not cis hi like i right. actually that's an have now language or i yeah i have like the the way to express myself finally um and things like that so that also like loses that nuance of like these these uh the fashion these uh subcultures can be those entry points to for people to find that language and self-expression absolutely yeah and then you know i could also kind of argue against myself here and say like good lad is really talking about um fiction narrative she's not talking about real people uh so you know in a way she does have a good point in that these heterosexual men that are writing and creating these uh, probably do perpetuate a lot of that, whereas mm -hmm. real-life goths use goth as a way to explore non-heteronormative yeah. genders. Um, but then that that does point back to, a, like, James O'Barr again being, like, pouring himself and a lot of his life basically into it. Um, like, I don't know a lot about this man outside the work and outside of what I've read about him writing about the crow, like in that intro. Um, but it is very interesting because yeah, when you look at Shelly, both in the movie and in the comics, in the comics, she is like that specter. She, 
even when she's alive and you're seeing you're reading the flashbacks and you're seeing it she is like illuminated like so beautifully and she has this blonde hair and she's like lily white like she's like angelic almost um and she is hyper feminine a lot of the times in the in the comics she is like nude she's in the bathtub she's walking around naked um and it's like she she is like this absolute symbol of like femininity versus like eric who does pull that um into like this androgyny look with his hair and the makeup and absolutely the attire I mean, yeah there's so many reads on it too because good lad says obar's narrative resists this constraint on male feeling by annihilating and deifying women uh on the other hand she also says shelly's femininity is reincorporated in eric's androgynous gothic persona so it's almost kind of like this character becomes both eric and shelly uh in a way that could be read as very queer uh mm-hmm. and subversive but within the context of western gothic revival may reinforce and privilege men's pain over women's pain and i think as in most things both are going on here uh it is mm-hmm. significant perhaps says good lad that the 1994 movie version of the crow for all its acclaimed goth aesthetic focused on eric's violent revenge not his self-mortifying pain which is different than in the comics there's a lot more focus in the comics on the self-mortifying aspect yeah and then she goes on to talk about Fight Club, which maybe will be for another episode. Uh, but this essay made me think about the male goth icons of the 90s who have recently betrayed us, uh, like Marilyn Manson Ooh. and Johnny Depp. <laughs> yeah. Like we should talk about that because. We should. <laughs> yeah. That is just such a thing. And I feel like Good Lad's essay, though written in 2007, really articulated a lot of the problem with these masculine figures of the subculture. I feel Marilyn Manson is an interesting case because he's sort of always been a piece of shit and it's like it's always been kind of a, you know, mm-hmm. an open secret. But yeah. his uh, like little speech in the film Bowling for Columbine where he talks about censorship and being targeted by the media after Columbine was so pivotal for me growing up as an artist who is interested in resisting censorship. And Mm -hmm. his obsession with Nazi imagery and Nazi memorabilia and the way that he abuses women is so at odds with that and and everything Uh he had claimed to be about that it feels like a huge betrayal i don't know how do you feel about that i mean i think it does like i growing up like i always like to say that house on haunted hill was 1999 was my first horror movie that i ever watched that i remember distinctly as a kid i was like five again my mother liked that movie too um and in it Marilyn Manson's cover of Sweet Dreams is in it. And that was actually like my entryway into Marilyn Manson later on. So I was, you know, this emo kid, this goth in the mid 2000s when he was, I feel like at that height, he was, you know, still, he just married Dita Von Teese, who I was like, wow, oh my God, I love her. Um, and, you know, 
there was definitely like I like noticed like that there's these things where I was like I love this music and I love this like uh persona but then there's weird Nazi imagery and I think that Nazi imagery also does happen a lot in like some goth like subgroups like that militarized wear the hats and the like outfits which is I think like another topic that probably could do like a whole nother episode on um but yeah like these were people who seemed to not fit into the mainstream who were actually being quote-unquote like honest and real um and fighting against like those censorship um I, I maybe correct me if i'm wrong because i am like a bit of a youth but i feel like there the the censorship in like media against like artists like musician artists isn't the same as it was back then either but what right now what like i'm fighting again like as a book editor is the censorship of our of our books um and that that um that quote of his like yeah from the bowling from columbine is interesting because it's like yeah i i am also trying not to have people censor our books because they're middle grade books or YA books or even adult books and they have queer characters and written by queer authors um, or trans and non-binary authors writing trans and non-binary characters you know we have librarians being run out of their jobs Um, so I feel like I'm ranting a little bit but like it feels it feels really interesting Um, and I think I, I I like that you use the word betrayal because it does feel just like that like it feels like you were outspoken, like you paved some ways and then you turned out to be an absolute complete piece of shit who has hurt so many people and it continuously does so. And not only that, but like revels and align, you align yourself. You keep finding people yep. to, to bring like to, to like cohort with. And it, 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 it yeah, exactly. And number one, how are you anti-censorship and worship Nazis who were, Exactly. I'm really jazzed about censorship. And I'm like, did we miss the point here? Right, exactly. And, um, you know, categorized an entire group of art and artists as degenerate art. And that was a bad thing. That's not a good thing. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the phrase sounds cool, right? But, but it's, that's how they would characterize art that they deemed as being, you know, outside of their eugenic framework. So it's totally at odds with that and furthermore you know to propose to be to care about censorship because you care about freedom and self-expression and subversive art and actually you just care about censorship because you're a raging narcissist (laughs) feels Mm -hmm. like a huge betrayal (laughs) i just feel really i feel duped and uh, if you, yeah go it, ahead it feels like those conversations where it's like uh we see like the fucking like conservatives or something being like well you're censoring us like we should have free speech like we're going to enter enter like you know like insert uh horrible race like or stereotype here like we're gonna be like like so and so um this country's going to hell, right? But then they're the ones turning around and saying, you're turning our kids gay with this literature. Like you can't be publishing middle grade and YA books that have, you know, queerness in them. Or they call books 
it across any category by BIPOC authors as critical race theory. And, you know, they're going to make white kids hate themselves or white people hate, like, it's like that same thing. And it's like, y'all all miss the point. Y'all don't understand what you're saying. Like, I, yeah, I can't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And how fucking dare you make such a subversive career off of transgender expression and Mm -hmm. borrow so heavily from that community of people. And one of the women that Marilyn Manson brutalized was a trans woman who did his makeup. And when he found out that she was Mm -hmm. trans, he pulled a gun on her. So how fucking dare you? Uh, It just makes me really angry and yeah i i truly believe that part of being a subversive artist is actually caring about women and queer people mm-hmm. and this is it's not subversive at all it's just mainstream and yeah that feels anti-goth to me uh, i think goth it <laughs> embraces everything subversive and controversial and uh, you know, yeah, Marilyn Manson, people always said he was a poser, and they were right. So <laughs> that, that's my rant about Marilyn Manson. So let's get into the plot of The Crow and how that plays into everything we've discussed thus yeah. far. We're finally there. Devil's Night. Why is Devil's Night significant, Shelley? It's because that is the night before Halloween and it's this night, it's also called Mischief Night. And it's basically this night where, um, as we'll learn, Top Dollars gang is just like going out and setting fires that he's approved. It's so funny because it's like nobody burns down buildings without my approval. (laughs) So they're just causing havoc all across town. (laughs) Yeah. And these villains are very sort of like evil for evil's sake uh like i love it yeah, no exactly. reasoning like the setting fires thing on mischief night um did you ever celebrate devil's night no i didn't i feel like that definitely has to be like like a like detroit like northern like midwest thing because i grew up in miami and we didn't have that oh okay i grew up in new york and we did have it um oh interesting but i don't like terrorizing people so i never yeah (laughs) i never participated in it um but a lot of my friends did back in the day a lot of my goth (laughs) friends so one of the big changes in this also is that Sarah, the young girl, is the one who narrates the story. So that immediately starts in the opening. There's a lot of CGI animation mm-hmm. that I'm sure was very high tech at the time and may even be now of this burned out kind of apocalyptic Detroit that we talked about. Unlike the graphic novel, we open on the crime scene, whereas in the comics, Eric has already become the crow. Uh, We see these images of Eric and Shelley before the attack, their wedding invitation, and they were, you know, meant to get married the next day on Halloween night. Mm -hmm. Shelley is hanging on for dear life uh, after this attack. And a crow cause. We meet Sarah, who in the the comics is actually named Sherry. Uh, I mm-hmm. don't know why they did that because I think the parallel between Sherry and Shelley, you know, is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know that makes her more of a reincarnation of Shelley 
uh, kind of, and the way that Eric Draven redeems himself. So she's much more connected to uh, mm-hmm. Sherry and Shelley in the in the comics. Yeah. And, she, and she's also older. Like, I think Sherry has to be like a very young girl, or at least she's written to either look and seem like a very young girl. Whereas like Sarah, I think is like what, maybe 13, 14? um so they age her up a bit too she's like this teenager yeah i guess um maybe it's a little bit more palatable for people to see a teenager experiencing the kind of shit that she does in this narrative uh (laughs) now one year later a crow perches on a stone cross sarah narrates and and puts flowers on shelly and eric's graves and you know we kind of see already that they had this very special friendship. Another interesting change is that it's Eric who in the comics survives a little long enough to go to the hospital. Um, whereas here it is Shelly and, um, you know, she's, she's the one who asks like, where's Eric? And they're like covering up his body. Um, and she's the, she, yeah. And she's the one who experiences the the 30 hours of like agonizing pain before, before finally dying. Um, right. Where she's, right, it's, it, yeah. it's, yeah. She gets shot in the head after being raped and brutalized and Eric watches. Yeah. And another um, difference in the comics is that she's raped before and after she's died, uh, which they didn't include the necrophilia in the movie. <laughs> Uh, maybe they thought it would be a little too much uh <laughs> so sergeant albrecht shows up his role has been expanded his race has changed um in the comics he's white um and he's getting a hot dog uh i do love like the grime of this movie like it's very tan it's birdie yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly oh, you can feel it like <laughs> yeah especially i mean at, right after the opening when Albrecht is getting this hot dog, you're like, wow, I really feel like I'm in a gross, dirty city. And yeah. Sarah shows up, you know, and her and Albrecht, we see that they have some kind of relationship. Now we get to meet some villains. <laughs> uh, but before we uh, really get into it with these this group of thugs, we have – the resurrection scene, the iconic yeah. resurrection scene. Tell me what you love about yeah. this scene, Shelley. Oh my god, I I love it because um, you see, I think you see the crow first, and it you know it's land, it's on the thing, and then starts like tapping on his tombstone, and then you just see this like dirt moving, and it's him like coming out of it. I really love it because it's also uh it has like the interesting like little thing where like his clothes has been put on backwards, right? Because it's you know a uh, funeral attire and he's been in like his most best dress suit. I even wonder if it was the suit he was going to wear, which for the wedding, which makes it like doubly like tragic because I'm like, does Eric Draven really have a suit just in general, like in his repertoire of clothing? Because he's like this rock star. He's like this handsome, like, I'm like, he's not dressing in suits. This was had to be for the wedding. Um, But yeah, I absolutely love it. It's like in the rain too. So not only is it like probably humid as hell, it's like, uh, or actually it might be cold. I it don't know. I have chilly, never. Been a little right. nippy. It might be a little chill. It's a little nippy. It's a little nippy. And 
he's coming out and he's like undressing as he's going through this alley and he's just like Brendan Lee was beautiful like this he man really was, was like a beautiful sculpted. man yeah like you're just looking at him and the hair is so long and it's like a little wavy and just like wow and it's such an interesting scene because he's also like disoriented so we're also like what is happening right and it's so gothic so frankenstein uh rain and cemeteries and storming Mm -hmm. uh and it's sort of intercut with this group of crime doers uh speeding down the street past sarah and albrecht there's really this sense that the law cannot control the crime element of the city Mm -hmm. eric follows this crow that's appeared to him uh, to his old building, which is now completely trashed. He enters the trashed former apartment and there's a a white cat there, which is Gabriel, which we imagine was his cat. I love that cat. It's a beautiful cat. It's, I want that cat so badly. Um, I think there's also like an interesting, there's a deleted thing. I was watching it. Um, there was a, there was basically like a longer cut of Eric stumbling through the alleys and the streets, and he comes across like a burning building that has just gone up in flames, which is the one that Albright and Sarah hear. Um, and it's been that this like uh, this I think it's a, a a woman stumbles out um, of like the burning building, and she's like obviously very hurt, but like Eric's disoriented. But even more, he touches her and he sees visions of like what the gang has done to her um and then like unfortunately like leaves her and then stumbles and that's when i think you see like the shot of him looking up in the rain um but that's been cut which is which is like interesting just because it adds like that kind of like Mm -hmm. oh yeah it was the gang and then he encounters this thing and we see more of his power working with like someone else right yeah, so, and when he picks up the cat, too, the memories come flooding back of the night of him and Shelly's yeah. death. It's almost like the cat remembers. <laughs> Which is so and it's been left there. No. I, yeah. yeah I know. It's very, um, there's a lot, there's, Gabriel is more of a character in the comics. Uh, and, you know, when he's, what he sees through the cat is that, this group of men broke into their apartment and raped Shelley before killing both of them. And I really like how the flashbacks are shot, like PTSD flashbacks in mm-hmm. this film. It's very, you know, deep sense of this being very traumatic for him. And that was actually a, a stylistic choice because of Brandon Lee's death. Because they weren't yeah. able to film a lot of those scenes in full. So they had to you know, splice them and make them more flashbacky, but it works. Yeah, um, I think it works. And and we get like, I think, like really good shots of like seeing each of them, like each of these villains. And there's also like an interesting um I think it's it's not Tintin, it's oh my God, which one is it? Um there's so many names. It's I think it's T Bird. Uh-huh. I don't I don't because he's like bird's dead later on. Uh he quotes from Paradise Lost, uh, from Milton's Paradise Lost, like a bash the devil stood, felt how awful goodness is. Um, and I think he's reading that either to Eric or Shelley um, during that attack, which is an interesting little quote for the English majors. Yeah, there's so much gothic literature throughout the film. They really kept that true to the comics. 
uh, Eric sees himself the way that he died was falling through the, this roundel kind of cathedral-esque window in their apartment and uh, he fell to his death and he briefly like swings from the shattered window for a second cutting open his palms and Jesus imagery of course which mm -hmm. instantly so now we're in the villain lair and I want to talk a little bit about the villains of this story yes so the director Alex Proyas said a lot of people in the film are bad they are a very entertaining bunch of characters I wanted them to have a lot of depth and was looking for very good actors who could provide that I gave them some humor so that you hate them but you also enjoy what they are like as people <laughs> thought that was really good choice I love I love that because a lot of the really fun lines are from them. Oh, they make the uh, movie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the villains are I, the most entertaining characters of the film. Yes. I think like Tintin's line, like my, again, my mother would always quote Tintin's when he's just like, Halloween until mañana. Like, <laughs> like, I love that. I love that. <laughs> yes. It's so good. So many iconic villain lines in this. We meet T-Bird, who is played by David Patrick Kelly, who studied at the International School of Mime of Marcel Marceau and worked with renowned acting teacher Mira Rostova. And he said, the concepts of light and dark, why evil comes in, and the powers of ambition and greed, the seven deadly sins, these evil things are completely dwarfed by the goodness that avenges them. We also meet Tintin, played by Lawrence Mason, who's very hot in this movie. Uh, I love him. <laughs> he's so good. We meet Fun Boy, the drug dealer, played by Michael Massey, who is unfortunately the actor who accidentally shot Brandon Lee. Um, I yeah. don't think he ever fully recovered from that, is what no, people say. I think it, yeah, I think he stopped acting, acting for like a while after yeah. that happened. And it only until recently has done like a few things. Yeah. Uh, we meet Darla, who is a fun boy, a sort of druggy girlfriend played by Anna Thompson. And in the book, it says her subtle performance makes for one of the more emotional sequences in the film. The gang is having a typical night of violence and drinking. I must note the part where Funboy kisses Darla and Tintin like licks her shoulder as they're kissing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It just kind of, you know, the movie is telling us like these are depraved people. Yes. <laughs> so back at the apartment, Eric sees this discarded sort of Piero tragedy mask that reminds him of Shelley. It was something that was one of her items and he's tormented by these happy memories next great scene in a grief driven rage eric transforms into the crow as burned yes. by the cure place <laughs> Every night I burn, every night I call your name. 
It's so iconic. It's the best. I think it's like just masterclass and using music uh, with like a montage scene and how effective it is. Like I think this one and Devil Wears Prada's like um, Andy's makeover scene are like my two favorite of like montages set to music. And I love a makeover montage. I love a transformation montage. And I, you know, where did he get all these clothes? (laughs) <laughs> like did they leave it because it looks so trash like there's definitely like some things that they left behind but like yeah does he have like the clothes is this the only stuff he finds like what this is this amazing <laughs> outfit that he has on that will be copied by goths on halloween for the rest of eternity ever <laughs> yeah forever uh so now we see tintin at the pawn shop i also feel like tintin is kind of queer-coded in this which again i feel like you know a lot of the um i mean every man in this is kind of androgynous except the cop uh and the detective and you know there's this there's this gothic sort of swagger that they have that's like very androgynous and queer Mm -hmm. Uh, top dollar as well is like a androgynous vampire absolutely Another great music moment where the crow, the the actual bird, not Eric, flies through the city to Dead Souls by Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> Someone take these dreams away that point me to the day a jewel of personality that strange or And Eric, like, as the crow parkours through the city, following his familiar, Eric sees through the eyes of the crow, so they're connected. So when the crow sees Tintin Uh alone in an alley, Eric sees it, and he, like, swan dives off a roof (laughs) unscathed to meet Tintin. And that's when they and he's face- laughing. Yes. <laughs> and that's when they face off and Tintin's like Halloween till manana. <laughs> yes. He says so many like interesting lines in that part right there. Um because he's like antagonizing him. Um but I just I also love in the scene because when they're facing off, like he's just like you 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 killed. Remember remember this? And Tintin's like, who? Like right. who He's the like, fuck? I kill like a lot of people. I remember, I kill a lot of people. Like I do a lot of things, and then it isn't until like he's just like Shelley Webster and Eric Draven, and like he says, he, you know, he says that he's just like, oh yeah, and then he like further, like makes like, you know, a very sexual remark about her. Um, he's like, I raped her some. pink ass, and she yeah. loved it. Yeah, yeah, and she very loved racialized it. Um, mm-hmm. Um, and of course. Um, 
he starts throwing like the dagger things at Eric, which is also like a really great scene of like Brent like catching that. Like, <laughs> yeah, so many good like stunts and martial arts throughout the whole movie. These are very comic book ish villains. Uh, Tintin says, Murder is fun and it's easy. <laughs> You know, they just they're they like they just enjoy it. They just enjoy killing. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a lot of times now we have like in media where it's like, but the villain has to have like a tragic backstory or they have to have a reason. It's like, do they? Do they, they really just be like evil? <laughs> I really they think, like, it. like, I'm going to get on my conspiracy high horse for a second here. And, you know, please excuse <laughs> please. me. But I really think that this push towards villain backstories is kind of coming on this wave of, like, abuse apologism that's coming up mm. post the first wave of Me Too. Um, I think mm-hmm. there's this idea, you know, people are really pushing back against all of the call-outs that have happened the last few years because of the Me Too movement that have seeped in not just into, like, heterosexual culture, but also into queer communities. And there's been this huge reckoning. And, of course, whenever there's some kind of cultural reckoning that changes the culture, there's always going to be backlash. And I feel like this, this urge to... Uh, not humanized because we're all human, but to find meaning in cruelty mm-hmm. when often the cruelty itself is the point for people yes. is misguided and it falls sort of into this, you know, I'm not the kind of person who's like, I've talked about this before, who's like, this is bad and this is good. I more so feel like mm-hmm. it is interesting that this is happening at the same time that people who are even people who identify as leftists are using the phrase cancel culture like unironically absolutely yeah and we see we see it a lot with like those also people who are called out for either their toxicity or abuse in certain communities or in industries um also then like weaponize language either social justice language or um, language pertaining to like mental health issues and th- and so then that is like becomes like their like origin story well like I'm a bad person but it's because like I suffer from x or this happened to me and it's like okay but like and I remember you actually talked about this on your I think you mentioned this on your um, episode with for the cell uh when you're talking about like um what's his name uh Vincent D'Onofrio's character versus uh, Vince Vaughn's characters. Um, so, right, like, yeah, I absolutely, agree. yeah. And I and in that episode too, you know, I said like, there's going to have to be people that work with these kinds of people if we, you know, if we want change. And you know, I still believe that. And there's also a part of me that feels very failed by restorative justice in leftist Mm. communities and you know I have very complicated feelings about that and in my heart of hearts I still believe that but I also feel like that cannot that that can't be at the expense of survivors and victims and Mm -hmm. do I know how to reckon with that no not completely but I do know that 
it is very important that the people that have been victimized are centered and not Mm -hmm. the rationalizations that the people person that caused harm is going to give absolutely for their behavior and yeah i just feel like i don't think it's one to one but i feel like there's definitely this trend that reflects this cultural moment right now yeah um so Eric stabs Tintin in like a ricochet of knives. Uh, yes. And T-Bird arrives at the fucking grunge club where Eric used to play <laughs> guitar. We have to talk about this club. Okay, listen. I'm like, I'm always like that person where like, you know, when people are like, oh, do you want to time travel somewhere? I'm like, no, not really. Because I'm Latina and I'm like a woman of color and a lot of eras would be bad. Like I even was mentioning, like uh, I, I was talking the other day and I was like, yeah, it would have been so great to experience like the eighties golf clubs. And then I was like, but I actually don't know if it would have been. <laughs> um, and this is like the same thing. I see this club in the, um, in, in the movie and you have like the band, you have this like, like grunge band and there's like all these people dancing. And I think that I, they have like people dancing in cages. And, and I'm just like, oh, I kind of want to be there. Yeah, in cages. And I'm like, oh, I kind of want to be there. Like, I just know the bathroom situation's absolutely, like, horrible. It's, like, probably, like, a, yeah, wretched, soiled. But I kind of want to be partying in there. But then I kind of don't. <laughs> well, maybe you would be on so much 90s ecstasy that you wouldn't care that the bathroom was disgusting. <laughs> that, too. That's what I'm banking that on. That, too. Yeah. <laughs> Back when they used to have meth in it. That's what we need. <laughs> To not care about that bathroom. So they're at this amazing club. Uh, T-Bird meets up with Grange, who's played by Tony Todd. Uh, Delicious. Delicious. Love Tony Todd. Uh, I bought my friend Nay, who's been a guest on this podcast a couple of times, a cameo from him for Christmas one year. And I made him say to her, That's amazing. my victim. Oh, I, <laughs> I would have lost it. I know. I still have the video. I think I, I watch it often. <laughs> uh, and in the book, uh, you know, he's kind of described as the Crow book that I've been referencing. He's described as top dollars lieutenant and private assassin. Uh, Grange is a strange guy. I don't really have a fix on him until I discovered this piece indicating jointed silver finger cuff it looks simple enough but it was the ring i needed that added a little comic book element so that's a quote from tony todd so (laughs) i love that yeah i love that now we meet top dollar and micah in their industrial goth lair an unknown naked woman lays next to them in bed uh, of the of Michael Wincott, Michael Wincott creates a fascinating and novel villain. His sinister deadpan delivery personifies evil while walking a line between scary and humorous. Uh, yes, I think he he really is like. I mean, everyone has really good performances, of course. Like Brandon Lee's here, but I think like Michael Wincott was like absolutely perfect like that voice by itself but also that wig i was like that wig was amazing yeah (laughs) like beautiful straight like down like i just love that wig i love his look um yeah and he he is very funny he has uh so so much humor um 
And I think him and Bei Ling are just phenomenal together. Like, oh, they're great. They have gorgeous. amazing chemistry. And mm-hmm. this is, I believe, post interview with the vampire, I want to say. So he's mm. very like a Lestat kind of figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, like this dark beauty and also but the humor in there, the gallows humor in there. Mm-hmm. Top Dollar's half sister and sadistic lover Micah is played by Bai Ling. Uh, I had a huge crush on her from uh, – and this character is supposed Less to be – than. Right. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, right. Like, come on. <laughs> she was supposed to be a Like, how could she not <laughs> – yeah, I mean, and she's like a fucking soldier from the Chinese army in Tibet. And uh, of this role, she said, I've played a lot of characters, but I've never played one like Micah. She's mean, mean and evil. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> she's so hot. Uh, in this So movie. hot. Her outfit, her hair, her makeup. I think I just bought... It's arriving tomorrow, like a new lip stain that I think looks just like the one she has. Mm. Because I'm like, I love it. Again, forever chasing like the looks from this movie to recreate now. Um, but yeah, she is just a stunner. And I and I really like her performance in here too. Like she it's so is good. so alluring to look at. I really wonder why we don't see her much anymore. Um, I hope. Mm-hmm. It's not because of the, the the moment in the 90s where a lot of women were blacklisted by these creepy men mm-hmm. in the industry. I hope that's not why we don't see her anymore. I hope it's her choice. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I believe that Byling has said that she's bisexual. And I knew that that fact really stuck in my mind when I was a kid. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why. And... <laughs> Not only is she Top Dollar's partner and and half-sister, she's also his lover. So there's this weird Mm -hmm. incest plot that I love. Mm -hmm. I do love the way it's brought up later on. He's just like, again, it's like Michael Wincott doing the deadpan delivery, but the humor with his voice, he's like, she's my father's daughter. You don't see the resemblance? Like... It's so funny. I love that. <laughs> yeah, they're like, yeah, we're fucking. Um, we're related. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and probably not the weirdest shit or anything like that, like anyone ever encounters. But like, yeah, like, I, I love it. She's, I feel like she's also like his, like, because she's also his lover and his sister, like his kind of like left-hand girl. Like he has Grange, but like she's also there. Right. So I love this part because Top Dollar, like, turns over the naked woman in their bed to reveal that she's dead and he says i think we broke her so they're like evil evil <laughs> like how did she die right. i'm like going through the scenarios like a thousand ways like how okay i want to know more but we don't get it and i'm like unfortunately i think um, i'm gonna imagine some sm gone wrong uh or gone probably. right for that <laughs> um and my note here Some is... Some witchcraft. <laughs> right. I would not mind dying in a threesome with these two. You know? <laughs> There's worse ways to go. <laughs> there, there are worse ways to go. Uh, but yeah, she like is comfort... I love that. Like the first scene we see is like she's comforting him. And he's like holding this macabre 
what is it like a cemetery gravestone uh snow globe and he's crying i'm like the first thing we see the like antagonist of this movie he's crying <laughs> what do you make of that i i think like this is like uh because it's like you know a short movie and we don't get a lot more but i mean that adds the intrigue of like I, I do want to know more. It's obviously like, it's obvious that like his father had to have been like really uh, like person because, you know, he later on when he tells Eric Draven that really awesome, like, you know, monologue. Um, but like, I don't know. Like I, 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 it's so interesting that he is this villain and he's super powered um, and maybe this goes back to like the androgyny of like he has this long hair, he's dressed very snazzy, and the first scene we see him is being very vulnerable um, and like upset about something. Yeah, and he's 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 upset, um, but then all of a sudden, I think we broke her, <laughs> and she's dead. The girl's dead. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Micah says, "I love her eyes, pretty," and positions this blade. <laughs> over the dead woman's eyes like yes <laughs> uh, I love her because she's such this witchy character and like I, I like love like this like air that she has that she definitely is doing some witchcraft for top dollar in the gang <laughs> absolutely I love that there's like um allusions to so many gothic elements like witchery or vampirism in this that are mm-hmm. not explicit but homaged it's like Mm -hmm. you know kind of inherent in this gothic tradition so sarah skateboards down the street and enters the bar the pit where her mother darla is all over her boyfriend fun boy so we see also that sarah is like very neglected child by by her mother darla she's very alone Mm -hmm. in the world Eric goes to the pawn shop where Tintin pawned his engagement ring to Shelley, and he breaks in and quotes Edgar Allan Poe, <laughs> uh, of course, the Raven, right? And goth culture is, you know, it's so deeply in the fabric of this film, and yes. Edgar Allan Poe is such a, like, a paragon of goth masculinity. Mm-hmm. This part also has, like, one of my favorites, which is also pulled from the comics of, like, Eric say like eric's humor and like again like this is brandon lee's like just incredible performance this is his movie but he's just like tell me if you've heard this one and he goes into the joke you know um where he you know the punchline is like can you hang me up for the night about like jesus handing the the three nails or whatever the nails on the thing i just love it because you just see like i think this is the first time you're really seeing eric's personality and like him totally in this persona yeah and there's you know there's more um jesus imagery like in that that dialogue and also the mr gideon the pawn shop owner shoots eric in the hand but the bullet wound heals immediately Mm -hmm. um eric tells gideon that he killed tintin and uh we see tintin's body riddled with knives being wheeled out by the cops um eric finds the ring and, you know, he threatens Gideon and tells him to give a message to Top Dollar's crew before he blows up the pawn shop with gasoline and a gun. <laughs> and mm-hmm. there's this confrontation between Eric and Sergeant Albrecht as Eric walks away from the wreckage. Um, but 
Eric vanishes while the sergeant has his back turned. And Albrecht refers to him as a mime from hell. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah. I mean, Albrecht is very funny in this as well. Uh, Yes. Micah lounges on a table while burning that woman's eye in some kind of like a cult (laughs) ritual. And Grange tells Top Dollar that the pawn shop has been burned down. And T-Bird tells him that Tintin has been stabbed. And Top Dollar reacts by snorting a giant pile of cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It is absolutely massive. I love it's it. It's massive. <laughs> yeah. Eric saves Sarah from getting run over. And she says, what are you supposed to be, a clown or something? And he goes, sometimes. <laughs> and, and she immediately, like, when he says that, is like, Eric? Like, immediately. I love that. Right. Like, Eric's humor is so distinctive that she immediately knows that it's him. Sarah realizes that the crow figure is Eric, but as soon as she realizes this, he vanishes. So next is the scene between Darla and Funboy and Eric, which is apparently almost identical to the comic. And mm-hmm. this, you know, it's a bit kind of war on drugs-ish. Uh, yeah, yeah. Kind of Christian. Uh, whereas the comic is much more ambiguous because Eric is also doing drugs. Mm-hmm. Eric enters the slum where Funboy and Darla are using and there's this confrontation between them. And Eric, as the crow, you know, he always taunts his targets by uh, getting them to hurt him so that he can demonstrate yes. his power. Yes, I do love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a power move. Uh and then Fun Boy, you know, shoots him in the hand again, but, you know, it heals before his eyes. Of course, Jesus stigmata references abound. Um, mm-hmm. And Eric, you know, has more like Bible banter, <laughs> uh, more Jesus metaphors. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is kind of a Jesus metaphor, right? Obviously, like resurrection, of course. Eric puts an unconscious Fun Boy in the tub with the water running and while that's happening he kind of like menaces darla and you know says you know shames her for being such a horrible mother and uh mm-hmm. he says mother is the name of god on the lips and hearts of all children yeah and he uses his uh his powers it's like very subtle like i don't know if like it is caught like by people but like when he's like gripping her like it's not that he has like enough strength to take the the heroin out, I believe. It's that he's using his power as he's saying that, like, mother is the name of God. Um, it's also interesting to me. That line is so interesting to me because I love bad movies. I love bad horror movies. That line is very close to one at the end of the Silent Hill adaptation um, where, you know, uh, the character of Dahlia asks why, like, Alyssa... Uh, spared her and um the woman reply like the main character replies mother is god in the eyes of a child oh yeah darla has her come to jesus moment (laughs) um like this is also interesting because this is like one of the things kind of cut out because skull cowboy isn't in it but the skull cowboy comes to eric and is like 
basically when like he lays the lay the land like hi uh your mission is to avenge your death and that of like shelly um you can't like fuck around with like the living that is not a part of that so it's really interesting because eric immediately like disobeys that by helping like you know talk like with darla um and i think that's the beginning of him like starting to lose his powers because uh... that yeah the skull cowboy's like if you do that you will lose your powers and i think he even says like and if you continue to do that basically kind of forsaking your mission and not focusing on it you won't get to rest is also the other like thing oh that's so interesting that adds so much more context Hmm. so eric sort of contemplates this used needle and you know if you've read the comics you think maybe he's gonna use mm-hmm. as well uh but no that's not what happens a spooked Darla, you know, runs downstairs into the pit bar where Gideon and Grange are talking. And Grange walks in on Fun Boy on the floor in his apartment with a bunch of needles stuck in his heart. And it's pretty gruesome. It's creative, too. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. Uh, and Albrecht is, Sergeant Albrecht is at home. Eric comes into his apartment. I find this scene quite boring. Um, Yeah, I think this scene is, it's interesting because like I do like them talking, but because these characters haven't ever really like interact, like there's no history, right? But between them, like the only history is that he was on the scene the night of. Um, That's the connection. Um, I do think that this is like a, basically kind of used for the vehicle for Albert to be like this is what happened to Shelly like yeah that's basically the point of the scene right because he tells Eric that he remembers what happened you know that Shelly was raped and murdered and Eric was you know shot and fell through a window and Mm -hmm. uh, Eric you know you know, he touches Albrecht on the head and he feels his memories of seeing Shelly in the ICU and how he stayed with mm-hmm. her the whole time, uh, 30 hours while she held on for dear life. And he, you know, kind of downplays his, his yeah. kindness in that. I, I do love that this is like one of the other moments where we get like really good Brandon Lee monologuing because he, he talks about how like little things mean used to mean so much to Shelly and I thought they were trivial and he says the line like believe me like nothing is trivial um and I think we do get a little bit maybe about Albrecht like having like a failed relationship and like maybe like also like failed like communication with someone in his like family um but yeah it's mostly for that scene for that moment for Eric to take on um, Shelly's pain. Right. So the next scene we see Top Dollar and the other villains gathered around their evil conference table. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Talking about their, you know, the Eric sightings. Uh, Top Dollar throws an eye at Gideon <laughs> and, uh, you know, threatens him at sword point about what happened at the, uh, the pawn shop. And you know, he kind of makes Gideon feel like he's going to back off and leave him alone. And then at the last minute, he stabs him through the throat and then shoots him because he won't die fast enough. Yeah. 
Um, this is where you really get oh my god top dollars like morbid humor so we got this really cool pan shot through the ground up to eric playing guitar on the roof absolutely shredding it Um, yes i feel like stranger things had to borrow from this scene you know what now that you say that i actually hadn't thought it and i'm like wait a minute yeah because it's like very similar like dark shit's happening right guitar solo solo, (laughs) on the roof (laughs) the uh the crow the bird crow appears to sarah and like that's when the crow leaves her the ring right I think um, Shelly's ring. I think. Am I mixing it up? No, that's she, that's it. I think that's at the end. Oh, that's at the end. Okay, so it's like at one point. No, that's at the she end. She gets the ring, um, and T Bird and Skank are sort of next on the list of villains that are going to die. Uh, Skank is sort of like a tertiary villain. Um, it's really there to deliver the news about T Bird. Uh, yes. Eric kidnaps T-Bird in his car at gunpoint and, like, makes him drive. There's a cop chase. And then T-Bird reveals why they targeted Shelly. So why did they target Shelly, Shelly? It's because of the – she basically gathered the tenants. Like, she was – she – what was it? Was it the – that they were going to get evicted or something like that? Mm -hmm. And she was – basically like no tenants rights like gathered up the tenants it was like hi you can't do this to us not knowing of course probably that a deranged villain is behind it It is the landlord and so she made this like huge kind of petition and so they were like well we're gonna teach you the ultimate lesson right yeah so of course they they had to murder and rape her it's very insane reaction (laughs) And that might be one of the only bits of, like, characterization, I think, that we get of Shelly, other than, like, flashbacks of her and Eric just being lovey-dovey or her and um, Sarah being, like, very sisterly to each other. Like, that's, like, I think the only other part where you're like, oh, she did this because she's a good person and because she tried to be a good person yeah i mean she's kind of like uh like good lad says in her essay she's very like deified like there's nothing yeah you know she's just this perfect feminine motherly selfless figure like very Mm -hmm. saint-like and kind of the perfect victim um you know, unlike Darla, who, you know, we judge a lot as a view as viewers, even though she's also clearly victimized in some way. Uh, yeah. You know, Shelly gets held up as like the perfect, this perfect woman. Yeah. Yeah. So Eric duct tapes T-Bird inside his car as T-Bird. It's amazing. Yeah, it's so good. As T-Bird, you know, realizes who, that this is Eric Draven. um, And he rigs it to, like, drive off a dock and explode. And, you know, this is when Skank sees that moment. So he can report it back to Top Dollar. And then we have Eric set a fire in the shape of a crow. (laughs) 
iconic yeah <laughs> not only does he have time to be doing this tonight he also has time to do some shit like that to yeah, antagonize people yeah. <laughs> so uh, we see like you know a little scene of grange like checking out the the grave where eric popped out of and um Sarah wakes up now to a changed Darla. And this moment hurts me because as soon as Sarah is like a little distrustful of her new improved mom, because why wouldn't she be? This woman has been neglecting her and abusing her entire life. Yeah. Um, you know, she shows a little bit of distrust. And Darla is like, well, never mind. I'm going to throw out your eggs then. I was never good at this mother thing anyway. And, mm-hmm. you know, then Sarah is immediately, you know, backs down and is like, wait, you know, mom. And then they have this, like, tender moment. Yeah, that's the first time she calls her mom, too, because yeah. she always refers to her as Darla. And she, like, enunciates it so that she can annoy her, which is like, Darla. Um, but, Yeah. And that's also, I think you mentioned it, uh, you had it in your notes too, where that's one of the few scenes of sunlight. Mm, and yeah, like, you're right. Yeah. Which is also interesting. Yes. Yeah. It's like, this is just such an abusive moment. And I don't think that mm-hmm. he thinks that it is. Um, no, I think it's like, a, oh, she's changed. Like, there's this hope and like, it's not going to be easy, but like, oh, look, like, they can be together like but will it like again sarah's like 13 or 14 right. at the most and it's been 14 years of this right <laughs> exactly and you know it, it's just yeah, not a not a great way to make amends with someone <laughs> mm-hmm. uh so the detective, the, I really for, I forget his name, but he's the guy with all the uh, the acne scarring. Uh, and I don't Torres. That, yes, Torres. Yes, I don't say that negatively. Yeah. I am like weird. I'm very attracted to acne scarring, um, so it's like notable to me that this guy. I also just miss. Yeah. actors had like character faces. Yeah, yeah. They're too pretty sometimes now. (laughs) Yeah, everybody is so smooth now. Um, And he gets, you know, mad at Sergeant Albrecht for being cagey about who this face paint goth terrorizing everyone is. Uh, Yeah. There's like... Yeah, there's like a interesting thing here. I can't remember what it's uh, how Albrecht is in the comics because I didn't really care about him, and he's it, it. It is so minor, but you get the vibe that Albrecht had to have done something that went against this police department that got him demoted from like detective and onto the beat cop like route, uh, and Torres essentially like. Uh, threatens him for either like not giving up information that he thinks he has which he does um or for like interfering and being like a smart ass because i love how Aubrey has always like these retorts um but yeah you definitely get that there's history there and Albright did something that they didn't like and so he got demoted right exactly. maybe contributed to his failing fam like ho- like house life personal life too i get the sense like that. that he's kind of like a loose cannon um maybe has a little bit of a mm. drinking problem mm. so sarah goes to eric's lair 
where he's brooding and having these memory flashbacks, um, but he doesn't reveal himself to her yet. Sarah has to sort of say that she knows that he's there and starts talking to him Mm -hmm. and telling him that she knows that he's Eric. And this is when Eric reveals himself, this stunning shot of Brandon Lee silhouetted in that broken Mm -hmm. window. Uh, Just... I mean, he really is just such a gorgeous man. <laughs> and it, it really is. <laughs> yeah. It, you're watching and you're just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's really like very, very tragic. And also in that like romantic tradition of like this, the beautiful, tragic, young, dead person. Uh, yeah. Skank uh, tells Top Dollar and Grange about how Eric killed T-Bird. Uh so that's that's getting tied up there in the plot. Sarah and Albrecht uh, talk about how they've both seen Eric. Um, and then Eric plays guitar on the roof again, silhouetted by this gorgeous Halloween orange sky. Mm-hmm. And then he smashes his guitar. My note here is, hell yeah, more industrial club goth scenes. <laughs> I love that. It's so good, and it, it ties so well with the with the with the um, soundtrack. Like you, it really they. I think that's like such a plus of this movie is like how thoughtful it is into Absolutely. the and how much the script the, itself. Yeah, and how much the music is part of it, and not just like an add on. It's actually part of the forward movement of the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult is playing in this scene. They're playing the song After the Flesh and it rips. There's a lot of innocent people being crucified. evil conference table scenes uh top dollar gathers like a bunch of powerful crime dudes to talk about crime stuff i'm not entirely clear honestly i think like the other scene is just for like albright and eric to like talk and for him to get this information this scene is just these people have just gathered to be potentially killed off (laughs) right exactly like that's all there kind of is like i think they're like talking about like how many buildings they burned it's kind of (laughs) like a little corporate in that way where they're like we burned down like this many buildings last year so this many it's like what (laughs) what is the okay we're going over this this. Uh, the the year results (laughs) right (laughs) looking at like graphs Uh, i love it (laughs) yeah um (laughs) Biling looks really hot in this like full vinyl oh corseted God. outfit. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what I t- took away from this scene was that Biling looks hot. Uh, <laughs> yes. Enter the crow. Perhaps always. Always. Mm-hmm. And a top dollar orders Eric to be shot and they, you know, riddle him with bullets, but he comes back for a shootout and there's this great action scene. And, you know, this is when it, 
uh, and it kind of late in the movie, but this is when it became really obvious to me about Brandon Lee's like skill as a martial artist because yeah. I feel like it's really showcased in this scene in particular. Yeah. And I definitely feel like I don't exactly remember about like the production. Like I, you know, he had his stunt double, but I feel like this is him. This is like his skills, his like what he does. Um, and he doesn't quite, if I remember, doesn't quite rely like on weapons too much. Like he uses usually their weapons against them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He, t- he takes their weapons from them. Uh, Eric throws Skank through a window onto a cop car after the shootout. So he's dead now. <laughs> uh so the SWAT team like chases Eric through the streets and Albrecht like picks him up to to save him. Uh an escaped top dollar and Micah talk about Eric Draven's link to the crow in their like limousine that's taking them away. <laughs> yes. Uh Eric, now escaped from Albrecht's car, broods, finally revealing the sick outfit that he's had on this whole time. And this is the first time we really, like, see it in full. Uh, There's a lot going on. There's, like, vinyl and leather. Where do we start? Like, it's, like, (laughs) the black long sleeve. But because he's been getting also shot at and stabbed, like, he's also done this, like, the like a bondage like yeah like vinyl or like leather like or maybe it's even electrical tape it might be like thick ass electrical tape like just around his torso yeah i think in it's like a very beautiful way yeah and i'm just like yeah so he's got like the boots and the, the pants oh. shirt underneath the electrical tape i mean it's just chef's kiss uh love him <laughs> and he you know he tells Shelly, you know, he talks to her and he's like, I'm going to join you soon. He sees this group of children yeah. run by laughing and you know, he smiles and laughs with them. Uh, I know we keep talking about how beautiful this man was, but in this scene in particular, because he's like, he's like leaning up against something. He's like tired. He just had this whole thing and he's seen the kids and he's so happy seeing them. Um he he's just like the smile like the way he looks in the scene i'm just like i melt like i melt (laughs) yeah i mean this is like one of those when you watch this movie you're like wow he was really gonna make it like he was going he was yeah i think it would have been this one yeah to be honest like it would have been right exactly it would have it definitely because his performance is incredible Eric finds Sarah at his grave and this is a very I think this line these lines are very poignant where she says you didn't say goodbye and he says you're just gonna have to forgive me for that and that's what we all have to do um yeah you know there are times when people will say goodbye and we get that closure and then there's going to be times where there's where we don't get that and uh, or someone dies suddenly and, you know, you know, this idea of like, you're just going to have to forgive me uh, is, you know, very sad yeah. and also indicative of how Brandon died, uh, you know, without getting to say goodbye to any of his loved ones. Yeah, that's true. 
Walking away from the cemetery, Sarah gets kidnapped by Grange, who takes her to what is like this burned out, abandoned Gothic cathedral. Um, I have to wonder if there's such a place in Detroit. I, I'm sure that there I'm like, is. please. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, he takes her to Top Dollar and Micah. They steal Shelly's engagement ring hmm. that Sarah wears around her neck. And, you know, Micah's, like, also sort of coveting her eyes. She does, you know, these eyes are a very important part of her, like, witchy rituals. Yeah. There's this really iconic shot of Eric with flowers at Shelley's grave. Uh, but suddenly, through the crow, he sees that Sarah is in danger. And he goes to rescue her where, you know, Top Dollar... The action really starts to escalate here and Top Dollar kind of shoots and overcomes Eric uh, because he's very weak now, which... This is also, because it's called Cowboy and not being in it, that's also where we lose some stuff. So we go from that shootout um, and now we see him getting more tired and like that makeup is kind of like going away because he's like in the rain he's been out and about uh, but there's a deleted scene you can find on youtube that it's uh john berryman in the in the costume i'm sorry i said michael berryman earlier uh and he's on the steps you can't you can kind of barely understand him because he has like the mask the prosthetics and whatnot as skull cowboy but he he basically like uh like chastises eric because he's basically like you're done the people who directly uh, murdered you and Shelly are dead. Like, you've done that. But now you're taking this extra step to go save Sarah. Uh, then you're going to go at it alone. Um, and so it's like him talking on the steps. That's when we get him going in. And so Albright, when Albright does come in, he has that moment where he's talking to Eric and he's like, I thought you were invincible. And Eric is like very annoyed. He's just like, not anymore. <laughs> you know, or he says something like that. Yeah, it, it, we really do lose a lot there because you kind of just have to assume what's happening. Um, it's not explained. Mm-hmm. And if you watch it without that knowledge of the skull cowboy, you think, okay, his powers are fading because it's are time. suddenly gone. Yeah, yeah. it's time yeah. for him to return to the grave or something. But um it was yeah, much yeah. clearer in the original script. So Micah steals the crow, uh steals Eric's crow. And you know, she's very tuned in to the paranormal nature of this because she practices the yes. occult. So Albrecht kills Grange um there's a showdown between Micah and Eric where the crow eats her face. <laughs> and as she dies. Yeah, I think it eats her eyes, right? Yes, it eats her eyes. Like, exactly. I, and I love that. <laughs> it's very poetic. And as she's dying, like, you know, she grabs onto the pulley that tolls the church bell and it, it tolls and it's very uh, epic and gothic. I actually think that her death scene is on the same epic level as uh, Top Dollar, which I really love. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of equalized in that moment. Top Dollar has taken Sarah up to this like rainy roof and he's holding her at sword point and, you know, Eric joins him and they have this sword fight showdown. And... and oh, so good. 
<laughs> it, it's such a good action scene and Sarah is like holding on to the dilapidated roof shangles for dear life and Top Dollar thinks he's like overcome Eric and then he gives him this little villain speech. <laughs> Again, another of like the really great memorable lines where he's just like, what is he? What is it? It was like, you know, my daddy said like childhood's over the moment you know you're gonna die or something like that again it's and it's delivered with michael wincott's voice exactly (laughs) yeah and it's you know he also kind of says to him he's like you know i admire you kid you you had a good run yeah yeah and he always says i'm real i think he does he say like uh i'm sorry about what happened like to you i think something like that yeah like he kind of apologized but it's like but you got to understand, like... But you're a casualty. It has to be done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it has to be done. Um, but Eric... Complex. <laughs> right. And in the, but Eric, you know, grabs his face and transfers his painful memories of Shelley into him. It's almost like imbuing him with this empathy that it was kind of hinted at in the beginning when we mm-hmm. see him crying. And then he pushes him on the roof where he's impaled by a gargoyle. Very poetic, gothic death. Mm-hmm. There's so like all is well, quote unquote. There's this kind of like cheesy moment with Sarah and Albrecht and Eric and the cigarette. Um, mm-hmm. Eric tells Sarah to stay with Albrecht until help comes, and then he disappears back to the cemetery. And nearly spent, he crawls to the grave of his love. And he's avenged her death. He's so close to resting. And Shelly's spirit comes to Eric and touches him. And they kiss and have a moment. And then he's gone. Yeah. And the crow perches on Eric's now sealed grave with the ring in its mouth, which it gives back to Sarah. And Sarah says as you know the movie ends real love is forever and then we get the the title card that says for brandon and eliza which is you know very moving um yeah very beautiful this this ending scene like i think um you know it's like one of those like things where you like know what's coming because you've seen it a lot of times but for me i'm always so emotional like i always like just like a tear i'm like because the music swells like he's so exhausted he's like leaning up against the grave he's like going to sleep basically going back to sleep um and she also comes back in like a white slip dress she doesn't say anything either um but she just touches him so gently on the head and then like smiles at him and like that's it and we know like okay they're they're back they're back together um I can't remember. So you, we have the same edition. Uh, my yeah, th- that special edition of the comic ends with him going back to the grave and talking to Shelley again. But we don't see like it be reunited, like them being reunited. Yeah, I believe that that's which, an invention of the movie. Um, yeah, yeah, which is also interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's just a lot more, like, palatable for mainstream American audiences, I feel like, whereas the comics are a lot um, darker and, you know, Mm -hmm. more ambiguous. And 
the ending here yeah i mean it's just very like you know you have to get chills because brandon is actually dead so it's yeah you know it's there's something very strange about watching images of someone who is no longer alive and uh you know something very inherently gothic about it you know the victorians knew that uh the way that they mm-hmm. would preserve uh people's hair uh bef- after they died and make art from it yeah um it's you know we might think of it as morbid but it very it's very much in this like m- tradition of mourning and for Brandon and Eliza, you know, it's very sweet that it's dedicated to her as well, as she is the person who's going to suffer the most in mm-hmm. the wake of this. And, you know, she doesn't get to be reunited with him. And, uh, yeah, whatever you believe, at least right now, uh, the way that Eric is reunited with Shelley at the end of this film, that is the crow. That's the movie, The Crass. <laughs> and, you know, there's a couple of sequels, right? There's the second one. Is there a third one? Yeah. There is a third one. What is it called? Um, I know there's like a made-for-TV show uh, that was stereo- st- The Crow Stairway to Heaven. It had like 22 episodes, and it was by Mark. Eric was played by Mark DeCasco. Because he's like the Iron Chef guy. That's what I know him. I'm sorry. I know him as. And so he is also like an Asian American actor with like a background um, in like, I think, martial arts too. Um, But the other following crows after Eric and before Mark's tenure are also all, I think, all white. Oh, okay. um, Actors too. Yeah, so the 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 I've only ever watched the sequel because it does include like a grown up Sarah, who Mia is Kirshner. even more morbid. Yeah, Mia Kirshner, who I also had a crush growing up oh, on, absolutely, um, and wanted to dress like. <laughs> um, so that's the only one I've ever watched. I haven't ever delved into any of the other ones. Me neither. I've only seen the second one too because of Mia Kirshner. Um. But I like the second one. I like the second crow. I, I do too. I, yeah. It's got some good things. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, nothing can come close to this. And this movie, this, it's just so singular, uh-uh. you know, and uh, it really inspired a lot of other action, gothic kind of action films like The Matrix and Underworld. Yeah. You know, it really was the oh, predecessor yeah. a lot of those. And it's impact is very much felt uh in mainstream media at large and in alternative goth subculture so i think that's all i have to say about that movie what about you shelly yeah i think i think we covered it all like like i mentioned like this is one of my favorite movies it's something that i've always loved um and always like will probably love um I was even like, how do I get a tattoo of this? But then I realized I have a bunch of crows already on my arm. So well, you can um, add like yeah, a no, silhouette like, of Brandon. Lee. I could add. Yeah. I do I do kind of want it. I want to go back to that this artist, um, Matt Murray at Black Veil. Um, but yeah, no, I just I'd love this movie. I love this movie. I think it's so wonderful. <laughs> it, yeah, it tell. really is. And like as somebody who 
really isn't oriented towards like comic book adaptations or action films like it's just mm-hmm. it stands on its own like you really yeah can love it even without loving those things uh so shelly where can people find you on social media if you want them to Ooh. Yeah, you could mostly find me, unfortunately, on Twitter. <laughs> I try to take some breaks, um, but my I, uh, handle or username is underscore SM Romero. Um, you, I will probably be yelling about publishing relating things or talking about movies, talking about horror, and also posting the occasional outfit pics and makeup looks because I do love to post those. Um, and you can also find my newsletter, um, which is ghoulgal.substack.com. Um, I have a website, but you could just find that on my like <laughs> Twitter if you're really intrigued and want to know more. Amazing. Thank you so much, Shelly. You should really follow Shelly. Thank you. She posts a lot of looks, which is very interesting to me <laughs> as as a creep. And so I love it when you creep on my photos. Listen. <laughs> See, I'm so glad that it's consensual creeping. Um, no, listen, anytime you give me a compliment, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I I that's it. That's all I needed. (laughs) If only you guys could see my face right now. Uh, And you know where to find me. I'm like not, I'm like trying not to be on Twitter these days. Uh, I think it's bad for my brain. Uh, It's, you know, it's not even, I just find myself thinking in Twitter brain when I'm on Twitter or more. And I don't like that. I don't like when I listen to a podcast or I read a, a, a a piece of film criticism where you can tell that the person is like preemptively creating like a you know a series mm. of walls so that like people on Twitter don't attack them. I feel like that's a really it's just such a disservice to the writer and I feel myself slipping into that when I use it too much so I'm taking a little break but you could still find me on there I think you know I'm my page is still up and everything it's girls guts gl x instead of o um and I'm on Instagram at girls guts giallo and I plugged my Patreon enough so I won't subject you to that even more but, but please come join us but join us <laughs> And thank you again, Shelly. Thank you.